From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon and thanks so much for being with us on this Wednesday. Another busy show coming up. We're also going to be checking in with Claire Newell as we do every Wednesday afternoon. And Claire is going to be talking a little bit more about what's happening with getting Canadians who are currently in Israel, getting them to safety. We are starting, though, talking about why some residents in a downtown Vancouver neighbourhood say they are disappointed that the city of Vancouver is not going ahead with the Comox year-round school street Project. And joining me to talk more about this is Lucy Maloney, the Roberts Elementary PAC chair, also a cycling advocate who has been on this show before. Lucy, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Tell me a little bit more about what exactly is the Comox year-round school street project? Well, um, volunteer parents operated a, a school street on one block of Comox Street adjacent to Lord Roberts Elementary School in the West End for over two years at pick-up and drop-off times to give kids um, space, extra space to play and a safe route to and from school using active transport. So the West End is obviously a really dense inner urban area and most of the families that attend Lord Roberts Elementary School actually already use active transport to get to and from school because it's uh, most families live uh, in apartments within walking distance of the school. But we ha- always had problems with um, lots of traffic uh, all around the school interfering with people getting to school outside cars safely. It was one of the biggest complaints we had from parents as a pack for many years until we started the School Street Program, which also operates at other schools around Vancouver. So um, staff put forward, City of Vancouver staff put forward a proposal um, to do public consultation on making our school street permanent. And it was a hugely popular idea with um, the people that use the school street every day and the kids that love playing on it. And um, a lot of residents really liked the reduced traffic and the peace and quiet and the sense of community that the school street brought to us. Unfortunately, though, there was some uh, very um, loud opposition to the idea of closing the block permanently to um, private motor vehicles. And as a result, staff have decided not to go ahead with the project. And we're really disappointed about that. Uh, there, there was opposition. I know there was a petition that was launched by uh, some of the residents saying that they, they didn't want this moving forward. What were you hearing from people who, who were opposed to this? Well, uh, it was a bit confusing for a lot of us who, um, who support the project because a lot of the concerns that were raised were kind of worst-case scenario hypotheticals. Um, you know, and and some of them were some of the objections were kind of um, inaccurate. For example, a major objection was um, emergency services vehicle access, and anyone that had seen that block of Comox Street when it was jam packed with drivers um, um, parked adjacent to the school and trying to go two ways on what was effectively reduced to a one-way street, there's no way you'd be getting a fire truck to either the residence or building B of our school to access the, to help the children 
um, during that time with, with cars parked in the way and trying to pass each other on the street. So um, I know that the City of Vancouver told us um, that nothing is done in terms of infrastructure without proper consultation with emergency services. So we were really disappointed to see um, misinformation spread about how the, the Comox year-round school street project would in fact stop emergency service vehicles accessing residents and the school, when that is simply not the case. There, there were some concerns as well, uh, I think, or, or some did raise concerns that, that it would we would ban or it would stop vehicle access and parking on that stretch of Comox Street and, and saying that that's adding to, like you said, it's a very dense neighbourhood and anybody who's tried to find street parking in the West End knows it can be very, very difficult. But was that one of the concerns as well, that it was going to be taking away, permanently taking away parking and access to, to a place where it was already very difficult to find those? things? Yeah, that is definitely one of the concerns. And and I'm very sympathetic to that concern for people who do rely on um, private motor vehicle uh, as a form of transport. All of those apartment buildings along that stretch that were affected by this project all have um, car storage and access to the rear lane. So it wasn't the residents directly on the street that already have car parks under their buildings at access that uh, exit to the lane that would have been affected. And um, in the West End, most residents don't actually have a car and don't don't rely on a car. And I think there's got to be a balance where when increasing numbers of um, residential towers are being built in, in the West End, we have to accept at some stage that we need to accommodate people who are getting around on foot, by transit and on bike um, and make sure that they have safe ways to get around. Uh, the feedback to the city of Vancouver on this as, as one of, of several school street projects uh, saying that, that during the first couple of years that the school community reported an increased sense of safety, saying that 95% of the students and 75% of the parents said they reported feeling safer on the street and that uh, then the numbers are lower, but people saying that they reported they were walking more and cycling more. Um, what, what was your sense on, on the idea of safety and, and the fact that people were feeling safer? Uh, that is definitely the case. We saw a real upturn in people using active transport to get to and from school, e-scooters, e-bikes, e-cargo bikes. Um, and just for the people even walking, pe- people could um, safely navigate the intersections around the school better. It, it caused um, what's called traffic evaporation. So traffic on streets around the school reduced um, because of that, that block um, being inaccessible to private motor vehicles, but open to people walking, riding and rolling to and from school. So it it caused people to um, allow parents, especially to allow their older kids to walk to and from school because they felt safer doing that. And, you know, for working parents, that's a huge bonus if you can be confident that your older kids um, are safe getting to and from school and crossing the road um, and it also caused a sense of safety because there were just more people out on the street, you know, more eyes on the street, keeping an eye out for the kids in our community, um, ready to help if there was ever any problem at all. 
Um, and just a sense of friendliness and playfulness of people having that extra space to um, gather and talk, especially during the pandemic, um, when people are much more concerned about being able to meet and gather outdoors. There were just so many benefits to our community. It was really wonderful. And so if I'm reading it correctly, was this this was in place as far as the school streets program, the uh, the Lord Roberts Elementary, that this was in place for a full year as a trial? Well, we actually did it for over two years. Um, the PAC uh, submitted a, a um, petition to the city of Vancouver asking for a protected bike lane along that stretch in January 2020. But um, uh, a about a year later, we were um, invited to participate in the pilot for the school streets program, um, a city of Vancouver and VSB joint uh, initiative. And so we participated in that one month trial and then everyone loved it so much, um, we decided to keep going with it. And Lord Roberts Elementary School was the only school that managed to just keep going with it um, for the full two years. Um, because it's really, really hard finding volunteers to staff the, the barriers, to put the barriers up and take them down and supervise the barriers. It took over 15 hours a week of volunteer time, so it's really not manageable um, as a long-term solution. You really need infrastructure um, to to make sure that parents who are already busy looking after their family responsibilities and trying to earn a living aren't the ones that are relied on to provide free volunteer time to make sure kids have safe routes to and from school. And so with the decision from the city then, so uh, instead of going ahead with the the permanent year-round school street, it sounds like it'll be an interim, uh, a two-way bike lane on Comox Street, again, that stretch between Bidwell and Cardero. Is that is that a compromise that was made by the city? Yeah, I think it's a compromise. We would be happier as a pack with um, a regulation with protected um, concrete curb protected bike lane, um, like we have on another stretch of Comox Greenway, a block down. Um, but unfortunately, that stretch of Comox Street um, between Bidwell and Cardero Streets just isn't quite wide enough um, for a proper bike lane without removing some combination of car parking spots and uh, and or mature trees, which obviously there's not the, the, the will um, to do that at this stage. So what we're getting is um, a flex post bike lane, which is definitely not going to provide as much sense of security and protection um, to people using it as we would if we had a concrete curb. Well, Lucy, we'll leave it there for today, but uh, I'm sure there will be uh, many, many people commenting on this. Thank you so much for joining us and explaining and giving us this update. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Jill. It is Wednesday afternoon, and that means it is time to check in with Claire Newell, founder and president of Travel Best Bets. Claire, good afternoon to you. Oh, good afternoon, Jill. Hopefully you can hear me. I have a really husky voice, a bad sore throat today. Um, and I, you know, when we, you and I chatted during the whole COVID lockdown and how awful it was for travel and how travel agents and advisors were just not working at all, it was just a terrible, terrible time. Yes. Well, I have to tell you that travel advisors right now are 
so busy on so many fronts and some of it is just so horrific. Obviously, lots of our team are working to get people out of Israel and I'm so grateful that the Canadian government is going to be getting Canadian Armed Forces aircraft involved to get people out. Um, so it's just that that's a really difficult time, um, a really scary situation. Um, I don't know if you realize, but yesterday there was quite a bad hurricane. Well, it didn't hit at hurricane levels in Puerto Vallarta. So I got here really, really early, like five o'clock in the morning, just to make sure flights were going and, you know, the damage to the, uh, if there was any damage to hotels. We have the India situation, you know, the visa situations not being allowed and so many people heading there in the next couple of months and having to change itineraries and people can't go now because of, uh, and, and then there was the change to the Egyptian visas. Um, you know, the fact that it's gone from being online, which made sense since we have the technology, to mail-in and just how that's affecting things. Plus, all the people wanting to go on hot vacations. It is just such a busy time to be in this industry at the moment. And a lot of it isn't great news. No, a lot of, uh, like you said, uh, a lot of people trying to to flee Israel to get out of there. Um, We did hear from the Canadian government that uh, they'll be using military planes. But you must be hearing from people as well with airports that are closed and flights cancelled, just desperate to find some way out. Yeah, uh, we have. And, um, you know, that's that's what a a travel agent is for. We did this during um, the pandemic when people were about to be locked down and things like that. And that's where, you know, that our team can actually help and all the other travel advisors that are out there. Um, Just a reminder, this is so, Hannah, you've heard me say it probably over a hundred times, Jill, but it's just a real reminder to register your trip with the federal government. And the website to do that on is travel.gc.ca. I'm going to say it again, travel.gc.ca. If you are leaving Canada, it doesn't matter where, you should spend the three minutes and go onto the website so that the government can reach you in the times of uncertainty. And in this type of a situation, um, the there were about just about 2,500 Canadians in Israel and about 480 in um, Palestinian territories that were registered on that website. And that's important because they can get in touch with you. And it's for those types of situations where it comes into play. You know, it's been a time um, prior to this where Israel has been a real bucket list destination for a lot of people. And lots of people have have it on their itineraries and it's going to be off their itineraries now for a long time. But it can happen uh, in the blink of an eye in this type of, you know, we, we saw this happen and it was, I was in Ireland actually when um, I first heard this happening uh, in the situation in Israel. And I just, when the attack started, I was just so shaken because I know that um, us as a company have been promoting people doing Holy Land trips and going on cruises that visit Egypt and Israel. And it's just, it's so sad. It's so scary. Um, But uh, like I say, it's, this is a reminder to register your trips. The other thing is um, to get insurance. And, you know, I guess since the pandemic, we've seen a lot of people get their insurance much more so than they have in the past prior to the pandemic. But um, it should include cancellation and interruption. Even better yet, there's a lot of policies out there that are cancel for any reason that really protect your investment. And it doesn't, it could be political unrest. It could be natural disaster. It could be all types of things that affect travel. Um, but it's just, 
there's just a lot of reminders in these types of situations that we're seeing that are, are important for people if, if they are planning to travel anywhere outside of Canada. Yeah, it's a, definitely a good reminder. And uh, and like you said, flights there have been halted and uh, and people just kind of waiting and watching and, and to see uh, what the what they can do next as far yeah. as movement. And, I, you know, I have, a, I have a big group of friends that I know are we're planning a trip to Israel less than two weeks from now. And I know lots of people have it on their agenda. This is a bit of a wait and see, but I don't think anyone's going there anytime soon, unfortunately. No, definitely not. All right, we will uh, keep watching what is happening with that. Let's talk, though, a little bit about some other travel news. And you mentioned some other um, situations and such that are keeping uh, agents very, very busy, but it does look like things are almost back to pre-COVID levels. Oh, wow. Is that ever a new report just came out by the International Air Transport Association. We call it IATA, and they've reported really strong post-pandemic passenger traffic uh, trend. It continued in August, which are the latest numbers that have coming that are coming out. So it reaching almost pre-pandemic levels. So the total traffic in August rose by 28.4% compared to August of last year. And globally, traffic is now at 95.7% of pre-pandemic levels. I guess if you were traveling over the summer, especially to Europe, you would have felt that. Um, but this is, you know, really promising. We're seeing it in the prices as well. A lot of prices still really, really high to certain parts of the world. Um, that, of course, depends on how many flights are going to certain destinations. If there are way more flights, um, you may get a deal. Um, and domestically, there are still some deals to be had. But the vast majority of airline tickets are really expensive still. Yes, uh, no, definitely. Good to see those those numbers, though. Uh, we've talked about people also wanting to travel, but also wanting to, to think about uh, your impact on the globe, on the environment. And this is interesting because G Adventures is looking at this. Yeah, and I don't know, um, for those listening, if you've heard of G Adventures there, it's such a cool Canadian uh, adventure company, and they go all over the world. But they've got a new initiative called Trees for days and more than one and a half million um, trees will be planted each year and this is great and it's going to be um, in places that are around the world that um, it's going to both mitigate carbon emissions but also increase support in 17 local communities around the world so they've actually picked some areas um, a lot that have uh, areas where they're emp- uh, empowering marginalized indigenous populations, women and youth. And so um, Argentina has is one of the destinations, Bolivia, Peru, Sri Lanka, Madagascar, Kenya, Nepal, Morocco, Tanzania, Honduras, um, Uganda, Thailand and Mozambique. It's just a really cool initiative. And one of the things I like about G Adventures, not only are they really kind of small, unique types of trips that cater to all budgets, all ages, and all comfort levels, you know, from backpacking to um, National Geographic type tours that are, you know, kind of bucket list, uh, amazing trips. Um, They're all amazing, but they really kind of practice what they preach. They focus on helping in areas that need the help. And this is just another initiative that they put out there. All right. Uh, Definitely uh, an interesting one with the trees being planted. Let's take also a a look at Air France and uh, KLM ordering a lot of new planes. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of airlines order a lot of planes. Um, And 
Air France KLM will be adding 90 new long-range Airbus A350 aircraft. Those are gorgeous aircraft. They're actually co-designed uh, by Porsche, so they're really beautiful aircraft. I was lucky enough to fly one in Asia pre-pandemic. So what they've got is um, 50 firm A350s plus another 40 purchase rights. But it's a deal worth about $16.2 billion, and the deliveries are going to start uh, coming in in 2026. Interesting, uh, indeed. All right. I'm so glad we're talking about this as well, because we have covered many situations, uh, stories of people that have had their wheelchairs either damaged or they've had issues traveling with wheelchairs, and United Airlines is making some changes. Yeah, I think this is... um uh, really exciting news for, for people who are wheelchair users. They're going to be employing a search function online, and that's going to allow users to search for flights that have enough cargo space to accommodate their wheelchairs. And if they're forced to book a different flight because their first option was is not going to be able to accommodate their wheelchair, United Airlines is actually going to pay the difference. And, you know, they're not the only airline out there trying to make a bit of a change to accommodate um, disabled passengers. I think you and I mentioned, I, I remember mentioning it. I'm not sure if you'll remember, but earlier this year, Delta Airlines said that they're working on a prototype that is going to allow wheelchair users to actually remain in their own seats during the flight. It's a prototype, but um, it, it's in the works and probably, you know, a few years off. But that would be amazing news for people uh, if you could just actually wheel on and have it strapped in and you could sit in your own chair. Yeah, definitely. We'll be watching uh, watching that one for sure. Uh, kind of along that vein, sitting together or family seating, uh, people know that could be a bit stressful and JetBlue is doing something about this. Yeah, so airlines have uh, in the U.S. have really been forced to, to look at this situation. Biden got involved because it was a situation where people would be booking and the adults would be separated for their kids potentially if they didn't want to pay to all have their seats assigned because it can get really expensive. So JetBlue has unveiled a family seating guarantee that'll ensure that kids aged 13 years or uh, or younger will sit next to an adult traveling with them on the same reservation. So that's really good news. It's just, it's been really stressful if you are a young family and you know, if you have to pay 50 bucks or $25 per seat, that really adds up in both directions. I mean, it can be hundreds and hundreds of extra dollars and nobody wants the stress or the added cost of that and more airlines are going to follow suit I believe. No exactly it sounds like some will do that for sure. Let's get to some of the deals that you've got for us. So where are we sending people today? Well, this is hot off the press, this one, this deal to Malta that I I sent you ahead of time. Um, It's a long stay trip that's three weeks. So it's 21 nights in a one bedroom sea view apartment, and it includes the transfers, and you can do it January 10th through until the end of February, keeping in mind that if you left later in February, you're going to have a bit warmer weather. It's $9.99, tax included, which Mm. is a deal for, for that. And I love that destination. So for people who don't know where Malta is, smack dab in the middle of the Mediterranean. It's an island nation. Great food, tons of history, culture, great beaches. It's a really fun destination. Um, Puerto Vallarta just is on sale between November the 14th and December the 11th. There are select dates within that period where airfare and seven nights in a four-star beachfront, all-inclusive resort, $7.99. Taxes almost the same at $6.30. Um, but a great deal if you've been waiting for that. 
Anaheim, California, November 20th through until December 8th. So that kind of pre-holiday, but it will be decorated in Christmas if you've ever wanted to see it. It's really, really beautiful. Uh, Air and Four Nights Hotel, four ninety nine. Mm. The taxes are two ninety. Now, I have heard a little birdie say that um, there may be a promotion coming for young families to Anaheim, California on October the 24th. I will share the news with it. Um, but like the rumors that I'm hearing is that kids that are like, I think nine and under are going to get some unbelievable rates, like rates we haven't seen for the, um, the park passes um, like in a decade. So mm. I'll, I'll keep you abreast of that and give you the dates uh, once I get the information. All right. Well, that sounds great. I know there will be a lot of families looking forward to that one. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, Claire, thank you so much for this. Always good to check in with you on Wednesdays, and we will talk to you again next week. Sounds great. Thank you, Jill. Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, a third Canadian has been confirmed dead in the escalating war after Hamas unleashed and invaded, uh, attacked Israel starting on the weekend. The Jewish Federation of Ottawa says a Canadian citizen... Adi Valta Kaplun was killed by Hamas militants in Israel. The group's CEO gave a statement earlier today on behalf of Kaplun's family in an Ottawa community centre saying that she had, her death had been confirmed. Again, that is the third Canadian citizen to be confirmed to be a victim of those attacks. And we're talking more now about that as well as one of the other victims, Ben Mizrahi, which we found out yesterday, had also been killed. He was attending the music festival that also came under attack when Hamas launched those attacks on Saturday. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit more about this, as well as what's been happening in response to this, is Rabbi Jonathan Infeld of the Beth Israel Synagogue in Vancouver. Rabbi Infeld, thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me to be here. I was chatting with with uh, Rabbi uh, Dan Moskovitz uh, yesterday, uh, the senior mm-hmm. rabbi at Temple Shalom. He talked about the close connection between his family and Ben Mizrahi. I understand you as well uh, live in the same na- neighborhood, also quite familiar with the family, and, and that much must be just just so difficult. Oh, absolutely. And you know, actually, literally, I am able to see their house from my front yard. It's uh, and so, and and uh, visited with the family shortly after they heard the news of their son being gone missing, and after the news of the attack on Israel. Um, and so, it's all very devastating for the whole community. I, I mean, the truth is, is that I, I think everyone in our community is extremely upset and and, and sad over the attack that took place this past weekend and and what that has caused the devastation and the the horror and the horrific nature of the attack is just devastating the fact that this is one of the worst probably the worst attack on on the jewish community in one day since the holocaust is absolutely devastating and 
And now we're extremely concerned about about what's going to happen in the days and the weeks to come. I understand your son is also in Israel. And and have you been able to talk to your son and find out from him where he is and and that he is safe? Yeah, so so thank God at this moment our son is is safe. He's in Jerusalem um, where he's on a gap year program and studying. And he's doing he's doing he's doing okay. Um, we, my wife and I, and and I think everyone in the community, are obviously not only concerned for him, but for everyone in Israel. And and, and the fact is is that so many members of our synagogue, and and of the entire Jewish community, have direct connection to people in Israel, family members, close friends, and and so many of our, even the members of of our community, of our synagogue and beyond, have family and friends who are being called up to the front lines right now. And so everyone is extremely concerned about uh, what has happened and what, what could potentially happen in the days and the weeks to come. It's really um, very, very concerning. Has your son decided what, what he's going to do as far as staying there or, or trying to leave? Um, at, at this moment, he's planning on staying um, they actually haven't canceled his program. This program is continuing to go on, and it's his desire to stay. Um, you know, we'll see what happens, though, in, uh, in, in the days and, and in the weeks to come. And that must be difficult. Uh, on the one hand, uh, I would imagine uh, very proud uh, that your son is there and wants to stay and, and wants to help, but also must be very difficult knowing that he is there and staying there. Exactly. It's, uh, of course, we are extremely proud of our son. Um, and extremely proud of, of his being there and his desire to help. You know, he, he told me yesterday that uh, he and his program wanted to go give blood, you know, just to understand what's happening. He and his program wanted to go give blood, but were unable to do so because there was a six-hour wait. Um, hmm. you'd be, you're lucky at this point if you're able to actually give blood uh, in Israel. Uh, they actually have run out of capacity to take blood from the number of people who are wanting to give. Um, but with that being said, of course, uh, you know, as any parent would be, my, my wife and I are extremely concerned for our son and, and for his safety in, in the midst of, of, a, of a war zone. Are you able a to... country that's at war. A country, by the way, that, that was attacked um, that was, was attacked for absolutely no reason at all, and just because it exists and because it's the Jewish state. It makes absolutely no sense. Yes. Uh, are you able to keep in contact, regular contact with your son? Yes. Yeah, we've been talking to him a couple times a day. Um, we're able to be in contact with him. And uh, uh, fortunately and unfortunately, he's so busy that he often isn't able to answer the phone. But, um, you know, fortunately that he's being kept busy and, and doing what needs to be done. Unfortunately, you know, we'd like to be in contact with him, obviously, all the time. But uh, as any parent would. And as any child would say, you know, I, <laughs> I need my space a little bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you, you mentioned, uh, again, uh, talked about the, the attack, the attack against Israel launched by uh, Hamas on the weekend. And uh, there have been rallies. Uh, there have been people, like you said, people in Israel giving blood, people here wondering what they can do, what more they can do. Uh, but uh, as you well know, there have also been uh, people going to the rallies and, and celebrating uh, this attack, saying it was inevitable that this was going to happen. 
How, how do you respond to that? Or how do you kind of look at what's happening, respond to what's happening, and, and then also to those types of messages? So, so as, as the head of um, the, rabbinic assembly, the, the Rabbinic Association of Vancouver, I, I helped to, um, to organize, along with the, a few others and, and the Jewish Federation, we helped to organize a, a, a huge solidarity um, gathering yesterday of thousands of people. And uh, thousands of people showed up, and it was, and and I, I, you know, I said at the I said at the at the gathering that this is a moment of comfort, this is a moment for consolation, this is a moment to show our solidarity with Israel, and and to and to to give each other strength. Within hours of the attack, the unprovoked attack on Israel, there were protests and. And, and I, I thought, what, I, I guess the protests were that not enough Jews were killed. I mean, this is, it, it, it's ridiculous. And the fact that this happened in Vancouver, the fact that people were celebrating the murder of women and children, of babies that yesterday they found, they found 40 babies in the corner of a room, many of whom had been decapitated. I, this is barbarism. And, and the fact that people are celebrating the replication of, of ISIS in the Gaza Strip in the form of Hamas is, is, quite frankly, an embarrassment to those people. They should be ashamed of themselves. And, and for those who say that this was brought upon Israel by its own hands, again, that's a complete embarrassment. In fact, one of the reasons that this happened is that Israel... Israel thought that, um, that Hamas was more interested in governing and, and helping its own people than murdering Jews. And um, that, if Israel made any mistake, that was their mistake. And that was the deception that happened is, is they truly believed that Hamas was coming around. Well, continuing now with Rabbi Jonathan Infeld with the Beth Israel Synagogue in Vancouver. And just before the break, we were talking about some of the rallies and the reaction to some of those rallies. And I'm curious, Rabbi, if you think there is confusion or that people are making the assumption that somehow or for some reason that Hamas and Palestinians are the same thing, because certainly that's not the case. There are many Palestinians who take issue with, granted, the actions, some of the actions of Israel. Israel, but are not in support of Hamas, do not support these attacks. But is that, are those lines getting blurred or, or blended together? I, I think you're right. There certainly are people uh, who, there certainly are Palestinians, and there's certainly people who live in Gaza who don't support Hamas. But unfortunately, at this, uh, at this moment, and, and for many years, um, literally all, for almost the entire time since since Israel disengaged from the Gaza Strip, um, Gaza has been ruled by, by Hamas. And, and make no bones about it, Hamas's desire is simply to destroy Israel. And, and unfortunately, we know that Hamas has taken so much of the aid that was meant to help civilians, that was meant to help the average Palestinian. And instead of using it to help the average Palestinian, it was used for weapons. It was used for destruction. And, you know, 
I, I am, I'm the child of Holocaust survivors. My, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles were killed. Um, as, as my, my aunts and uncles were killed as literally as children. My father was the only person to survive from his immediate family. And, and he, he survived um, by, by sheer luck. And, and the fact is, is that that entire family was killed simply because they were Jewish. And, and, and that's what we're seeing again today. And, and to see people celebrating in the streets of Vancouver, to see people celebrating across Canada, the destruction and the death of Jews, once again, is, is sickening. And, and something that I believe that there's no moral equation here. And, and the fact is, is that, is that the situation in Gaza right now, and historically, over the last number of years, is because of Israel's need to defend itself and to prevent from happening what did happen this past weekend. What about the response from others as well that isn't as clear or uh, perhaps as offensive as those celebrating, but the response, say, from universities, from from other officials mm-hmm. that that are, are couching it or, or, or using language such as just referring to it as conflict or talking about making mm-hmm. sure to tell both sides. What about that response? Because yeah. that's not a response. That wasn't the response when the planes went into the 20th. In towers. It wasn't about two sides. Right. It, it, that language seems to only be used about this particular situation. Yeah. You know why? It's, it's simple. It's clear. It's because we're talking about the death of Jews. When Jews are murdered, the world is silent. When my grandparents and my aunts and uncles were murdered, the world was silent. Unfortunately, Canada was silent at that point, too. Thankfully, the government of Canada, the provincial governments, our local governments have not been silent this time. Thank God, as, as we speak, I'm, I'm protected from potential anti-Semitic attacks by the Vancouver Police Department. Thank God our police are here and protecting us, and we are so grateful for that. And for the universities and for those who hurt to be in a position of leadership, to stand on the, on the sidelines to make um, a moral equivalency argument is absurd. And we know what they're, we know what's really at the heart of this. We know that what's really at the heart is just simple anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism comes in many different colors. Sometimes it is blatant and sometimes it is hidden. And what we're talking about and have been talking about in many universities for many years now at this point, is just hidden anti-Semitism. At one point, it was clear. It was came in the form of quotas. And once, once quotas were no longer a thing, now anti-Semitism comes in the form of anti-Semitism. It comes in the form of anti-Zionism and in the form of hatred of Israel. And, and anything literally connected to the, even the very concept of Jews defending themselves. What needs to happen, do you think, both internationally and on the grounds in Israel, in that part of the world? What, what do you, or, or what do you see unfolding next? What do, I, what do I want to see or what do I see unfolding? First of all, I'm, I'm just a rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not a uh, PhD in political science. 
Um, but, uh, you know, my, my prayer, my sincere prayer is for peace. My sincere prayer is that um, Israel and the Palestinians will be able to live together peacefully one day. At this moment, we know that, that that's not likely to happen right now. We know that, unfortunately, what has taken place is, is an atrocity, um, an, an attack, uh, and, and continues to be one that Israel must defend itself and must prevent this from ever happening again. So I, I pray that, indeed, peace and will, will come soon to Israel and, and that there will be no more bloodshed. And I really hope that that is and pray that that is the case. Rabbi Infeld, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Thank you. Well, I think this combo is guaranteed to make people laugh. They are coming straight from their Las Vegas residency. And Colin Mockery and Asad Meki are going to be taking Hiprov improv under hypnosis on the second leg of their North American tour and there are tour dates coming to Vancouver Nanaimo, Campbell River, Sydney I'll have more information on the tour dates coming up but both Colin Mockery and master hypnotist Asad Meki are joining me now to talk more about this thanks to both of you for being here Oh, thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, it's exciting to talk to you. I know, Colin, people will recognize your name probably most from seeing you on Whose Line Is It Anyway, but from many of the other shows that you've done as well. Asad, you are a master hypnotist, which is pretty cool as well, and you two have kind of joined forces. So who wants to start and tell me a little bit about this show that's coming, well, to many different places, including right here, Vancouver and Vancouver Island? Sure. The name of the show is Hipprov, Improv Under Hypnosis. I'm the master hypnotist on the show. I bring up 20 volunteers. I hypnotize them, whittle it down to the best subjects, enter Colin Mockery from Whose Line Is It Anyway. Colin then improvises with the people on stage while they're under hypnosis. The show's fast-paced. It's action-packed, high energy, and above all else, hilarious because we've got Colin Mockery from Whose Line Is It Anyway in the show. Well, Colin, t- tell us a little bit about that, because, again, people will, will remember you from Whose Line Is It Anyway? I know you have a background that uh, involved being a big part of theater sports here in Vancouver. How is it different when you're dealing with people who have been hypnotized? Yeah, uh, well, when I'm working with um, normal, <laughs> what, I don't want, what, want to use the word normal, but people who aren't hypnotized and improvising, you know, like the, the people on Whose Line, even though we're all making up, um, what's going on, I still have a sense of where they want to go in the scene and where the direction may go. You don't have that with these people. They don't have an end game in sight. They just react to everything you say. They're not thinking, oh, maybe if I say this, this will lead us to a point where we'll get to this ending. They're just giving great information. So that makes it a little more, uh, a little different, and it makes it more fun for me because I really have to pay attention to what they're saying and giving me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, uh, not listening to what uh, what what they are saying. Uh, Assad, what is it like then? Well, first, is it difficult getting volunteers? Because I would think some people would be hesitant and be kind of afraid of what could possibly happen after they've been hypnotized. Jill, they storm the stage. They have to beat them back with a broomstick. It's absolute mass hysteria. 
And I'm not joking. Truly, people come up on stage. They're running up on stage. I have to tell them to slow down. I mean, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get hypnotized and then improv with a comedy legend. That's me, by the way, just in case there was any uh, confusion. <laughs> That's when somebody asked, oh, is somebody else joining the show? No, of course not. So we knew that uh, was No, you. it's me. I'm the comedy legend. <laughs> we know. <laughs> but, Asad, how did you start doing this? How did you become a, a master hypnotist? I studied the martial arts for a long time. So meditation, visualization, self-hypnosis, they're all interrelated. When I was in my first year of university, one of my friends went away to Hawaii over spring break. He was sunburned very badly, and he happened to be traveling with his father's friend, who was a dentist who used hypnosis in his dental practice because hypnosis can be used for painless dentistry and painless surgery. Ronnie was uh, itchy and uncomfortable because of the sunburn, so this dentist hypnotized Ronnie to to take away the burning sensation associated to the sunburn. I was absolutely fascinated when I heard that story, that kind of started me down this road. Uh, Hypnosis is used for painless dentistry, painless surgery, painless childbirth. Hypnosis is used for smoking cessation, weight loss, stress management, peak performance for athletes. Uh, It's an incredible uh, therapeutic tool. But then at the same time, what we do on stage, no therapy at all, (laughs) just the wacky stuff, the wild stuff, the strange stuff. The the actual part of the brain that deals with self-reflection becomes disconnected when, when somebody's hypnotized. So they no longer reflect on their behavior. They just carry out my suggestions without hesitation and without question. See, first-time improvisers, they'll play to a crowd, they'll hesitate, they'll look nervous. Whereas these people who are hypnotized, they just immediately react to all my suggestions without hesitation, without question. And they do seamless improv with Colin. It's amazing to watch. They keep up to Colin. And the good hypnotic subjects at times even steal scenes. It's amazing to watch. Hmm. Well, Colin, what's that like when, and you kind of touched on this in that they're not looking ahead, they're not kind of in the moment, but but what's that like when somebody, you know, starts stealing the scene or things go maybe in a direction you weren't anticipating? Well, of course, I immediately hate them. (laughs) Then being a professional, (laughs) I have to think about the show. Um, You know, for me... Part of being an improviser, one of the rules is making your partner look good. And when they sort of take off and go into this great direction and you can feel the audience in awe of what they're doing, I feel I've done my job. I've uh, showcased them. And that's what we're both trying to do. We're trying to get rid of a lot of misconceptions about both improvising and hypnosis. You know, I, all my hypnosis facts came from the Flintstones, which surprisingly are wrong. <laughs> Uh, so um, what happens is we just take away the impediment that stops you from improvising, which is basically you, the part of the brain that says you're going to be embarrassed, you're not going to be able to come up with anything, that's gone. And they just feel relaxed enough and confident enough to give me and Assad anything we want. And Colin, is it different or, or when you come back to Vancouver, I don't know, people might not know that you actually came to Vancouver at a pretty young age. When you are back in Vancouver and performing on a Vancouver stage, does that make it different? It makes it different because it's harder to perform in front of friends and family because they all want stuff from you. <laughs> you know, when we go to um, a town where nobody knows us, I mean, that's the thing. It's, we can concentrate on the show. When I go home and I love Vancouver and I have a lot of family and friends there, but, you know, people want tickets. Uh, usually the people I never see until I do a show. So uh, it's a little different. 
yeah, yeah. Imagine if you were to win the lottery. Where where would they all come from oh. at that point? <laughs> um, Luckily, uh, that's never going to happen. <laughs> Asad, you mentioned that that people really want to be hypnotized and want to get on the stage and take part in this. Do you find are there people that are challengers that want to take part in this because they feel like you can't hypnotize them? So nobody can be hypnotized against their own will. So I, I make that pretty clear up front. So people who come up on stage have to be honest and willing hypnotic participants or hypnotic subjects. See, the research indicates that people who are able to dissociate from their surroundings are really good subjects. So even if a skeptic comes up, but they're one of these people that are able to dissociate from their surroundings, get, get, get so wrapped in what they're watching or what they're reading, that they're moved to a physiological response, they're the great, they're the best subjects. So I'll give you an example. Two people watch a tearjerker. One person watches the movie and says, uh, you know, the acting's kind of bad. I don't really buy the plot line. I'm not really invested. And sits there watching the show and is not really fully immersed. The other person is sobbing and bawling their eyes out. The person who's sobbing and bawling their eyes out, they're the person who's going to be a really good subject in a hypnosis show because it describes perfectly what occurs up on stage. These people get so immersed in the moment and they disassociate from their surroundings, get so caught up in the moment that they're moved to experience all these incredible uh, visual hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, kinesthetic hallucinations uh, on stage. It's really a fascinating subject. Hmm. And uh, how did you guys come up with the idea to put these two things together, to mix improv and hypnotism? I was taking classes at the Second City, and oftentimes the instructors would say, get out of your heads, you're too much in your head. And they'd be addressing first-year uh, improv students. And what I realized was they, they were doing all these exercises to engage the conscious mind the critical analytical part of the mind of the students that were taking the courses. And I thought, okay, wait a second. I see what they're doing. They're bypassing the conscious mind and getting unconscious functioning here. And I thought, wait a second, is it possible to hypnotize somebody? Because that's what happens with hypnosis. You're moving the conscious mind aside and working directly with the unconscious mind. Is it possible to hypnotize somebody that has no improv experience and turn them into a great improviser? And the answer has been a resounding yes. And then I thought, is it possible to up the bar or even increase the stakes even further and bring in the world's greatest improviser. Again, that's and me. Have, <laughs> that is me, Colin Mockery. And have them improvise with Colin on stage. And it has just been an absolute whirlwind. And, and Colin, is that what you were thinking as well when you got involved? Um, I didn't have, uh, like our hypnotized people, I didn't have a end game. I just thought, you know, I've been doing this for uh, over 40 years now, and I had this fear of getting too relaxed and content and maybe doing the same things over and over again. And I thought this would be a nice little uh, kick in the butt, working with people I've never met who are hypnotized. And it's really, I think it's made me a better improviser, and the show is just so much fun. So I'm, I'm glad it's worked out beautifully. Well, thanks to both of you. I know uh, the shows will be great when you are in town, but thanks to both of you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.